The name Shalom Aslander probably doesn't mean anything to you. But this week, this individual wrote an essay in the New York Times calling for this Passover season for us to forget God. These were his words. In this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else, God. And later on in the essay, he claims that Yahweh, the God depicted here in the Exodus event, in the Passover event, that he is a hateful God, a brutal God, who acts with a heavy hand and is someone who is hard, impossible to please. And so he calls for us to instruct our children this Passover season to pass over God. And the question is, is Mr. Shalom right about that? Is God this heavy-handed divine despot who is impossible to please. Well, in our passage this morning, I come away reading the Passover event with a very different take than Mr. Shalom. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been in a study in the book of Exodus, and we are coming to sort of the, the first ending here of part one, where we look at the Passover event and the Exodus event, the sort of the, the culmination of what everything has been leading up to this point. We've seen over the last 80 years, there was a Pharaoh who oppressed God's people, who used state-sponsored genocide to keep them pressed down and oppressed. And out of their oppression, they call out to God, and God hears them. And He protects one small boy from being killed in the Nile River, a, man by the, a boy by the name of Moses. And He raises that child up in the palace of Pharaoh. And then eventually Moses sort of begins to embrace his call to deliver God's people. And at the age of 40, he tries to do something about it, and it fails. And he has to go into exile for 40 years, tending sheep in Midian. And then at the young age of 80... God appears to him and says, Moses, now the time is right. I'm going to send you to Egypt to deliver my people from their oppression that they may serve me and that I might be their God. And we saw last week that Moses returned to Egypt and he confronted Pharaoh with ten plagues. And we looked at those and we saw how those plagues were really God's way of demonstrating to the whole world that He alone is God. There may be rivals that rise up against Him, but if they enter into the boxing ring with Him, He will come out with the knockout. And last week we looked at most of those plagues except the one that is sort of predicted in chapter 11 and is fulfilled in Exodus chapter 12. And so what I want to do is help you see that the Exodus event and the Passover event really aren't this standalone event. They're actually connected with these plagues. And so I want you to jump back to chapter 11, and I want to start reading there in verse 4. And what I want to do this morning is read through the story. Dwight's read some of it for us, but I want to read back through it very quickly. And then I want to make this point that I think that these passages are making to us. And then I want to apply that to us that's sort of our agenda this morning. So let's look there, Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. So the nine plagues have been given, and Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn 
child that is, in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out." And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, and the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. And then after that, you would sort of expect that you would hear the events of the plague being fulfilled. But before those are recorded, instead we get the Lord speaking to Moses and to Aaron and giving them instructions about worship. Some liturgical instruction on how they are to celebrate the Passover. Notice what he says there in verse 3. Tell the, all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb without blemish. And if the household is too small, he shall take his nearest neighbor with him. And then verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day on the, of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then he says that when they kill that lamb, they should take basically a, a paintbrush, if you will, in their day, and dip that brush and then take that blood and paint it on their doorpost. And he gives them instruction of how they should cook this lamb, to cook it with bitter herbs, and they should roast it, not boil it or eat it raw. And then basically at the, towards the end of this instruction there in verse 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, remember earlier when Moses was with Pharaoh back in chapter 11, he says that there in verse 7, he will make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And now in chapter 12, verse 13, he's explaining to Moses how that distinction is going to be made. The Israelites are to take this lamb that they've slaughtered and paint its blood on the doorposts so that when the Lord sees the blood, He will pass over that house and the plague will not fall upon those who are covered in that blood. And then he goes on to give some more instruction about another celebration that we're going to look at when we come back to Exodus, the celebration of the unleavened bread. And basically the idea of this is that they are to, to cook bread without yeast in it to show that they're going to leave in haste. They're ready for this journey. They're trusting that God is going to do what He said to do. He is going to deliver them through this last plague. And so they're trusting God to do it. So their bags are packed. They don't even have time to let their, their bread rise. So they have to eat unleavened bread. 
Then the story continues there in verses 21 through 27. Basically what you have is in verses 1 through 13, the Lord gives Moses the instruction about the Passover. And then in verses 21 through 27, Moses then turns to the people and instructs them on what they are supposed to do. He basically recaps this. And then in verse 29, we pick up the 10th plague actually happened. At midnight, right, verse 28, the people of Israel went out and did so. They, they killed the lamb. They painted their doorposts with blood. And then in verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, a mixed multitude, that is, there were some Egyptians mixed in with this, also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." And the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now, if you just read this story sort of on face value, it, it can seem like this is, this is just a model of sort of a socio-political liberation. Here are people who are oppressed, and they were oppressed for 430 years, and God is sort of delivering them out of that oppression. And certainly that is involved. It is true that we see here God's concern for the oppressed. We've noticed that throughout the study of Exodus, that God would hear their groaning, it would come to His ears, and so He acted out of compassion to remove them. And even later, as we get into the book of Exodus, we'll see many of the laws that God gives to His people will be concerned with how you treat the poor and the oppressed and those who are more vulnerable within their society. But we must be careful not to just view this on just a socio-political level. It is more than God just acting to deliver oppressed and victimized people from their abuse and from their oppression. Remember back last week in chapter 9, verse 16, God hinted at and revealed why He's doing these plagues. And He said, For this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So the work of God in this Exodus event, in this Passover, isn't just to provide relief for an oppressed people. God has a bigger agenda than that, that through His power delivering them, His name, Yahweh, who alone is God, will be proclaimed to all peoples. The rest of the Bible sees this. The Bible comes back time and time again to the Exodus event, the leaving out of Egypt, and the Passover event, God passing over and not judging His people, sees this as a model of salvation from sin and from judgment. So the focus here is on the freedom from judgment, the freedom of from sin rather than freedom from the oppression of someone else's sin. And we know this because as we just read in Exodus 11, the plague is announced there, and then in chapter 12, verses 29 through 32, we see that plague being executed. And in between its prediction and its execution there in verses 1 through 20, Moses receives this understanding of what's taking place in the Passover, that it is to be a plague of death, and that the Israelites escape by killing a lamb and painting the doorposts with its blood. Then Moses passes on that instruction in verses 21 through 27. And as we saw there in verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. They obeyed him. And this feast is called Passover because the judgment of God is going to pass over. It's going to bypass his people. We saw that in verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you because I strike the land of Egypt. So the point is this. The Israelites deserve judgment, the judgment of death, just as the Egyptians do. Right? They're just as much deserving of that. And so if this was a story just simply of political liberation, and there are Christians, especially now, that are growing and trying to turn and twist this into just that. If it was a story about simple political liberation, oppressors, Egyptians, oppressed Israelites, and God comes in to save the day. If that's all that was going on, then Israel would be innocent victims. And they would have no need to be covered in the blood so God's judgment passes over them. But that's not what we read in this story. The truth is, is that they were deserving of death because they were sinners just like the Egyptians. The blood is dabbed on the doors, not because God can't tell who's inside the house. He knows who's in there. And he knows that every household, whether it's in the land of Egypt or the land of Goshen, contains those who have sinned against him. And in every home throughout Egypt and throughout Goshen where the Israelites dwelt, the death count is the same. The following morning, there is a corpse at every house. The only question is, who faced the judgment? Is the corpse that of the firstborn child, or is the corpse that of a lamb that has been slain? Because the lamb serves as a substitute for the child. 
And the blood on the doors is a sign, a proof that a sacrifice has been made, that a substitute has been offered. The firstborn should die as part of God's judgment, but the Lord has provided a substitute that if we'll kill the lamb, his judgment will bypass us and not fall on the firstborn child. Now, of course, as we read this story, I don't think anyone really thinks that a lamb is a fair exchange for a human being. A person is much more valuable than a lamb. And so the Passover here is a pointer to a greater event, a greater sacrifice that would come. John the Baptist, who was the last prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, One day when he saw the Lord Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Peter said, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we see... There is a great liberation that takes place from an oppressed people, and praise be to God for that. But there is something more spectacular taking place than just the liberation of a nation of slaves. Jesus is being pointed to here as our Passover lamb. When he was on the cross, he was being slaughtered as a lamb. He was sacrificed as a substitute in our place. We should die for our sins. Christ is dying on the cross. We all deserve to die because of our rebellion against God. What Shalom said there in his article that he doesn't want God to be God. He wants to be able to tell God how he ought to be. And as a result of that sin, we deserve God's judgment, which is death. But the blood that is dabbed around those doors now is dabbed on the cross in Christ. And those who trust in Him, His blood, as it were, is dabbed over our lives so that God will pass over us. We deserve judgment, but because we're covered in Christ's blood, figuratively there, right, we do not face judgment for our sins. So is God really that hard to please? Well, it depends. The cost is great for us to be pleasing to Him. There has to be a sacrifice. But the good news is is that God provides the instruction of what that is to be. That a lamb must be taken, a lamb without blemish or spot, a perfect lamb. And it must be slain. And we must trust and rely in it. And the good news is that is exactly what we celebrate on Good Friday 
and on Easter morning that God Himself has provided the Lamb. God Himself has sacrificed the Lamb. And everyone who trusts in Him is covered in that blood and bypasses God's judgment. God really isn't that hard to please. We satisfy God by trusting in His substitute. That's how God's pleased. Not by deeds that we need to perform. Not by trusting in God's substitute and providing our own substitutes to sort of go along with the substitute that Jesus is. It's that simple. We simply satisfy God by trusting in the substitute that He has provided. Last month, my family took a vacation, and one of the things that we did is we went to this, this place that basically had an indoor uh, ropes course that you could climb on, and it was very high up in the air. And you would get on that course, but before you did, they would strap you into this harness that was hooked into this safety system so that when you were up many stories in the air, you wouldn't fall and die. And everybody would be hooked on that. And as you walked up at those heights of those stairs and you made your way on the different obstacle courses that they had designed for your enjoyment or for your suffering, right? Depending on how you relate to that type of thing. It was interesting to see the, the different reactions of people. Some people had some confidence in walking up there. Uh, they trusted the harness system. They knew it was safe and secure, and so they could run around on the obstacle courses. You weren't really supposed to run, but there were some brave people. They were doing that. And then there were others that were a little more skittish, holding on to that rope, walking with ease, when the reality is, even if you fall off the obstacle course, you can't fall down. The rope's holding you. You see, no matter whether the person was confident in the harness or whether they were skittish and a little bit skeptical of the harness, the reality is the harness kept everyone safe that was hooked to it. And I'm sure that even in this Exodus event, the, the night before the plague fell, that there were different families as they had gathered and heard this instruction to, that Moses said, that, look, God's about to come with the 10th plague, and He's going to kill every firstborn child unless you kill this lamb with these specifications and you dab that blood on your doorpost. And as those Israelites went to do it, I'm sure there were some people with great confidence that slapped the blood on the doorpost. And then they're eating on that lamb with great confidence. They've not got a care in the world. Look, God told Moses what we're supposed to do. If we do that, God promised He'd pass over us. We'll be safe. Let's just have a good evening here. And I'm sure there were some other Israelites that were huddled in their home with great fear, trepidation. Oh, this plague's coming. How do we know if this blood's going to work? God said that, but I don't know if it's sure. I, I've got a little bit of question in my mind, but you know what? I did what He said. I put the blood on the doorpost. Now, who was delivered? The one with great confidence or the one with weak faith and trust? Just as the harness held everyone up on the rope's course, whether they trusted in it fully or not, right? They, they strapped themselves into it. The same is true here. As long as the Israelites put the blood on the doorpost, they bypassed God's judgment. Because the power was in the substitute not in their trusting. 
And that's why when we say, is God really hard to please? Well, you satisfy Him by trusting in the substitute. And even in that trusting, there is going to be a difference. Some people have, in this, even in this room, have a more confident faith, and others have a weaker faith, the weak, simply the, the small faith of a mustard seed. But it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the substitute that we're trusting in. Now, once we have satisfied God by trusting in His substitute, the Lord Jesus, who is the Passover Lamb, what does He provide for us? Once He is pleased, what does God provide? Well, He provides redemption. Once we trust His substitute, once the Israelites trusted that if they painted the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost, what would happen? God's going to deliver them. And that's what we read there, the Exodus event. It worked. Pharaoh released them from their slavery, and they were redeemed out of that slavery to serve Yahweh. And the same is true for us. When we satisfy God by trusting His substitute, we experience redemption. Not redemption from some physical slavery like the Israelites, but redemption from something much more heinous. Two things here. God provides redemption from the power of sin. We read there when it mentions in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. The focus of that without spot and blemish is to, to highlight there is a liberation from the power of sin. You see, before we're Christians, we're slaves to sin. Right? People think there's this autonomy that they can do life however they want. They want to cast off God's rule so they're really free. But everybody's got to serve somebody. Okay? And you're either a servant of God, a slave of God, or you're a slave of sin. And before Peter had written that about being ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, he had given some moral instruction to the Christians. And this is what he says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We'll read a couple verses here. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So in this instruction, we're told to be holy because we can be. We're not in our former way of ignorance. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And now that means we have this newfound ability to serve someone else. We're no longer captives to the power of sin. We are to be holy because that is God's purpose in redeeming us. 
So there is redemption from the power of sin to what purpose? To experience the joy of service. To experience the joy of service. Beforehand, we can't serve God because we're slaves to sin. When through redemption, when we trust in God's substitute, God redeems us out of the power of sin, and He gives us a new power to serve Himself. We'll see this. Back in chapter 4 of Exodus, right when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, and he's giving this instruction here, he explains what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 22 through 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Right? Yahweh's saying, These people belong to me. They need to serve me. That's the experience I've created them for. And what's interesting about this is this very word that says that they may serve me. If you go back to chapter 2 of Exodus and verse 23, notice this description of Israel's service to the Pharaoh. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. In the Hebrew, it's the same word that was used for service to God. Slavery and service, same Hebrew word. So they're groaning. They're groaning under service to Pharaoh. And Yahweh comes and says, I've seen the oppression my people experience when they're not serving the one they were created to serve. They're serving Pharaoh. They're being oppressed. But I've come to deliver them out of this oppression that they may be freed from its power and serve me. You see, under Pharaoh's rule, the Israelites experienced work without rest, the state-sponsored murder of children, the confiscation of their property. But in service to God, they find freedom. So it's not freedom from the power of sin so that I'm free to do whatever I want. It's moving from being a slave and a servant of sin to being a slave and a servant of God. And so Israel is liberated, but they are still slaves. It is just to God. And it's such a beautiful picture to see that in the beginning of Exodus, these Israelites are being oppressed and they're being forced to construct buildings for Pharaoh. And as the book progresses towards the end, we see that the people of God in great free will offerings voluntarily build a building for the worship of Yahweh. They have been liberated from serving Pharaoh that now with their free will heart, they're serving Yahweh. We get a picture of this in its application to us as Christians today by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. And I want to read a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 6 verse 15. And I want you to notice this play of language between slaves. Slavery is a big thing here. And think of service with that. What then, Paul asks, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of Pharaoh, now slaves of Yahweh. Slaves of sin, now slaves of righteousness and of Yahweh. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, that was before your redemption. You were a slave to sin, and that's what you presented your body to do. And to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification or to more conformity to Christ's likeness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were presenting your life to sin to serve it, you didn't care about righteousness. Because you were a slave of sin, not a slave of righteousness. But what fruit, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now... You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then Paul summarizes it there in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. So if you're going to present yourself as a slave to sin, you're going to get death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our redemption... From the power of sin takes place, and that enables us to experience the joy of serving Christ instead of serving self and sin. But we also get the redemption from the penalty of sin. The wage of sin is death, but those who have satisfied God by trusting in His substitute are redeemed not just from the power of sin, they're redeemed from the penalty of sin to experience the joy of life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is teaching about Himself, and He uses the imagery of being a good shepherd. And He contrasts Himself as the good shepherd with thieves. And He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that, I may have, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, when we think about the Passover event and we see God liberating His people from service to Pharaoh, which was oppressive, which was harmful, which basically led to their early deaths, to the freedom of serving Him. We see that a great picture pointing us to Christ and seeing that when we trust, not in our own ability, not in our religious works, not in our good deed, not in turning over new leaves for God, but we simply trust the substitute of Jesus. That when we see Jesus on the cross, we see someone who is innocent being punished not because he was a sinner. He didn't deserve death. I deserve that. But because Christ has borne it, if I trust in Christ, God will pass over and I no longer have to face his judgment. But beyond that, he has redeemed me. He has freed me from the power that sin once held on my life so that now I am free to serve Him. And He has freed me from facing the penalty, the judgment of death so that I can experience life now in growing in Christ's likeness 
and ultimately look forward to that eternal life with Him forever. Now, why does this matter? Well, we talked about going to that ropes course. And we talked about how when I first went in, you, you see all these people walking around, and, 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 and you see the people that are a little bit skittish up there. I'll be honest with you, when I show up, I look at that, nah, that's not that big of a deal. That why are people walking around, holding on the rope, they're scared to death. You got a rope attached to you. And then I got up there. And I realized that looks a little bit higher when you're up actually on those ropes yourself. And uh, I have to admit that my first go around up there, I was holding pretty tight onto that, that rope. And in my mind, I was saying, Seth, what, holding onto that rope's not going to help. This thing breaks, you're going to hit the floor like a pancake. <laughs> and so it was a struggle. To, to, but even though I knew, even if I fall off this obstacle course, the rope holds me. The harness provides the safety, whether I was trusting in it or not, right? It's on there. I trusted enough to put it on. And in the moment when that was happening, you say, but what's the difference between the scared part and then people with great confidence walking around, which I think I can say with complete honesty, I reached that point towards the end of the day. And the difference is, is the enjoyment of the experience, right? Both are safe because they're in the harness, whether they had a strong faith in the harness or a weak faith, the reality is they're still safe. But the one who had a stronger confidence in the harness could experience more of the enjoyment that that course offered. Because you could skip and hop and do a lot more things on there because you were relying on the harness to keep you safe. And the same is true when we think about trusting in God's substitute. Whether you have a, a weak trust in Christ or a strong trust in Christ, the reality is you've been redeemed from the power of sin. You have been redeemed from the penalty of sin, no matter how strong or weak your faith is. But the weaker your faith is, you're not going to experience as much of the joy of serving Him. Because when you go out to serve Him, your mind's going to be constantly on, oh, is God pleased with how I'm studying the Bible? Oh, is, is God, am I doing this right in serving my neighbor? Am I, you know, God tells me to do this, and as I serve Him there, oh, is God accepting me? God accepting me. Trust the substitute. And enjoy the service. Trust the rope, and you can enjoy the rope course. But if you're struggling and truly believing... Trusting in Jesus as the substitute has satisfied God on my account. There's nothing I can do through my service to make myself more acceptable to God, period. Christ has done it. And when you know that, and you truly are trusting in the substitute, you're free to serve with joy. And when you're trusting in the substitute to free you from the penalty of death, you are able to experience true life because you know you're accepted. You know there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so you can experience the abundant life. And as long as you continue to truly trust Him, you're going to bypass the blessing that God offers you in serving Him and the abundant life that Christ came to give to you. So brothers and sisters, know that God isn't hard to please. We satisfy God 
when we trust in His substitute. Trust in Him and experience the redemption from the power of sin to experience the joy of service and the redemption from the penalty of sin to experience the joy of the life He offers you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We are so thankful for the substitution of Jesus Christ. Father, we, without Christ, we, we have nothing. We could spend 10,000 lifetimes trying to feed the poor and relieve those who are oppressed and, and all those things that you do call us to do in service to you. But Lord, all of that work would never begin to repay for the crime that we've committed against you and sinning against you. And so, Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that, that though the cost was great in pleasing you, your only begotten Son, your firstborn Son, Jesus, it cost Him His life. We're thankful that you've made it so simple that when we hear this message of good news that a substitute is available, we can satisfy your demands towards us if we will simply trust Him. And so, Father, I pray for those here this morning that haven't done that. Father, I pray they would lay down their efforts, lay down their striving, lay down their deals they're trying to make with you and accept the deal, the only deal you make. Here's my substitute, accept them or, or not. And Father, I pray for all of us that, that in moments we can have strong faith and in, in other moments when things are going, in our, going wrong in our lives, it, it's hard to trust you. It's easy to feel like we've got to do more or add something else to it. And, and, and Lord, as a result, it, it makes our life miserable. We bypass so much of the blessing that you offer to us in serving and living for you. And Father, I pray that, that those who are trusting, they, they've put the harness of Christ on. But Lord, I pray that you would help them to experience more of the joy to truly walk by faith. So they wouldn't view service and living for you as a burden, but truly eternal life, what it's meant to be. Lord, I pray you would teach us that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.